Don't just look around. There's probably some extras hanging around there. Well, often in a class like this, and almost always at a class at Otter Creek, there, there are questions or issues that get talked about after class with whoever winds up having to teach. That's just the way Otter Creek is. And frequently, they're, um, sometimes they come in the form of questions. More often, they come in the form of comments, which pretend to be questions, but they're really answers. <laughs> but that's OK. But then every now and then, you get something that's kind of different. And, and last week, we got a different kind of a response from the class, which um, certainly caught our attention, certainly my attention, because it was a poem written by one of the people in the class. That was their way of either asking a question or making a comment or both. And we liked it because it was just unusual. So as a way of, of dusting the cobwebs off and reminding all of us that, oh yeah, we're talking about Genesis this week and what the dramatic logic thing is, I'm going to read that for you. It's on the back. It's the part that looks like this. Not the outline, but the backside. We want you to be able to see the words because reading poems... <laughs> Helps if you can see them sometimes. In the beginning, the taming of chaos, light pierced the darkness, torrents pooled and settled, dust fell from wind into piles. But light still fell dark, storms still raged, earth still quaked. Taming chaos reaches for good, while perfection withholds its debut. Life, language, law, <coughs> Lord, love, all, at the just the right time, angels and all things just a little lower, find habitation in a good and dangerous place, tamed enough for the fragile to breathe, chaotic enough to redust them all. Light, liquid, land, learning to live, a little walk from garden to city, eternally undark. You see things undarked. That's by Chris Gonzalez. Which deserves a little Thank you, Chris. Well, um, I'm very aware of how left-brained I am and uncreative when uh, I was thinking we should start this off with Chris's poem. And now I'm thinking, oh. I didn't realize I was going to have to follow that up. Uh, that was a terrible idea. Um, so, uh, but I'll do my best. So, I'm going to do a, a little recap for the next five or six minutes on some of the material we covered last week because uh, as we're thinking about the genre and the nature of those first couple chapters of Genesis, it's, it can be uh, difficult to, to come to... I don't know, to understand and to accept some of what we're saying. It can maybe even be a little disconcerting. I've been teaching Genesis to my undergrads uh, for five weeks now, and uh, so I'm trying to do what I'm doing for them in a much shorter time, and they're still struggling a little bit. So let me, I, I recently got uh, this, 
what I'm about to do for you all that I did in 45 minutes for my Genesis class um, is about to get, well, about. It just got accepted for publication, so that's kind of exciting in the perspectives on science and Christian faith. Uh, as I kind of gave, here's my example of me trying to teach this uh, to college students who take the Bible seriously, as they should, uh, while at the same time thinking maybe um, a flat, uh, hyper-literal reading of Genesis is not um, the best way to read this text. So I started out by reading to them from Luke 16, where Jesus tells the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Many of you are familiar with this. There's a certain rich man, a certain poor man. Uh, the rich man dies, is carried to Hades. The poor man dies, and uh, he winds up at what sounds like something like the great banquet beside Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel. Um, and they have this dialogue across the chasm where the rich man who's in Hades is looking across, and he's saying, Abraham, send Lazarus over here to take care of me. And uh, Abraham says, no, you can't cross this chasm. And he says, oh, well, then send them to my brothers. And Abraham says, no, let them listen to the law and the prophets. So I read that whole parable to my students, and I said, what genre is this account of the rich man and Lazarus? And almost all of them said, parable. It's a parable. Um, and uh, I said, but it doesn't label it as parable. Jesus doesn't say, now let me tell you a parable. Luke doesn't say, in what follows, Jesus told a parable. It just goes right into this account. Uh, and so I say, okay, we seem to have these instincts to tell us it's a parable. How do we know that? What are our genre clues? And so some things got mentioned like, well, you have these kind of archetypal characters. You've got a certain rich man and a certain poor man. You've got this kind of strange setting where you're talking across a chasm from Hades to the great banquet, which just seems kind of weird. You have these same kind of motifs in Egyptian and rabbinic literature, where someone dies and you have this afterlife scene and this appeal to messengers from the dead. So these kinds of things suggest, when Jesus is telling this, he's telling parable. Nothing upsetting, nothing shocking about that. And I moved to saying, okay, in this parable, what truths are being taught? And they said things like, well, one's status in this life is not indicative of one's status in the afterlife. And things like um, what the law and the prophets are pointing to are in line with what Jesus is doing. And stuff like uh, you can expect judgment and maybe reversal. And it's important to show mercy now. So there are truths taught in this. And I said, do you think, since this is a parable using common motifs, this is giving us a precise and literal description of what the afterlife is going to look like? And they almost all said, probably not. The afterlife is probably not us leaning against Abraham's side and peeking over into Hades with an uncrossable chasm where we can shout across to one another. To, to make the parable do that is probably to misread the parable. So there are truths being taught, but we don't push the, the kind of motifs <coughs> farther than they should be pushed. Everyone's, they felt non-threatened by that. All right, Strahan, uh, we're good with that. Um, you could do something similar with Psalm 19. You have this... this um, and a wonderful account of, of uh, celebration of creation, where the sun runs its course, and it goes to the tent uh, that God has made for it in the sky. Uh, and, and when you read Psalm 19, it doesn't say, and now for a hymn, now for something poetic. But we know the genre. We have instincts that kind of prepare us to read this genre. So are there truths being taught in Psalm 19? Absolutely. The, the wonder and the beauty of creation, God being in control and ordering his creation. 
Is this giving us a precise scientific account of the sun finding its way into a tent? No. But we know that. We're not threatened by that because we have these instincts that tell us when we're reading poetry, when we're reading parable, uh, there's a particular um, approach to this where we don't press some of the metaphors beyond how they're meant to be pressed. So I said, now when we turn to Genesis, what are our genre clues? Because when we got to the rich man and Lazarus, it doesn't say it's a parable, so we look for genre clues to help us see that. And you got this feel based on, um, on the characters and the setting. So Genesis 1 through 2 is not labeled with any genre. Now for folklore, now for history, now for science. It just enters right into it. So we have to tune in to what clues it might be giving us to help us think about how to read this well. What kind of literature do we have here? Um, and so uh, we kind of enter into it. Now with Psalms, we got 150 of those. So we have instincts. We read a Psalm and we almost immediately know. Poetry, hymn. We read parables, we've got several of those. When we hear a parable, we have instincts. Parable. When we read something written from the ancient Near Eastern world, we don't have many instincts. I'm guessing most of you guys do not uh, haven't brushed up on the Gilgamesh epic or the Atrahasis or anything like that, right? So you don't have honed instincts. Uh, so uh, sometimes we need a little help paying attention to genre clues um, since we lack some of those instincts. And what we get is uh, things like, and I mentioned this last week, there's a kind of poetic structure. You have this rhythm. God said, and there was, and it was good, and there was evening and morning, the something day. And it goes again and again. I mentioned last week, days one through three seem to parallel days four through six. Day one, dark and light. Day four, sun, moon, stars. Day two, sky and sea. Day five, what fills that? Birds and fish. Day four, or day three, land, what fills that? Day six, land animals, humans. So these kinds of things are getting us thinking, oh, oh, maybe, maybe this is cluing us in that this isn't offering precise literal account, especially when your two main characters, remember rich man Lazarus? Certain rich man, certain poor man, sound kind of representative. And who do we have? Adam and Eve, whose names mean something like human and life. So if I tell you a story about Mr. Human and Mrs. Life, you might think, oh, maybe this is doing something a little different than a precise kind of description. You have a strange situation. It's not Hades yelling across to the great banquet, but we do have God kind of in his, uh, having this kind of dialogue, what shall we do? Uh, you have a creation being made. How can you even begin to describe that? So there are these other things make us think, hmm, maybe something else is going on here. When we looked at the rich man and Lazarus, uh, we noticed, well, I pointed out that there are Egyptian and rabbinic parallels that are using similar motifs. Well, even though you may not be familiar with them, there are ancient Near Eastern accounts that are doing something similar with the creation story. You've got humans being made not from dust and the breath of God, but from clay and the blood of a slain God. Um, you have a snake that comes by and steals the fruit that will prolong life. And these little hints suggest that just as Jesus, when he told a parable, was taking a common story and saying, here's a common story, let me tell you how I would tell that story and teach truth from that with these kind of differences. It's as though um, the, the author of Genesis is saying, you've got these common ideas about, about uh, creation and about humanity. But let me take those common ideas and, and retell them in a way that 
that's truer, that's truer to who God is and who we are. And so just in a bit, um, I, will, I will kind of point out 10 things that I think when we read this Genesis 1 through 2 closely, pay close attention to the literature here, um, and we keep our ears open to what's going on in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, we see uh, some profound truths. However, um, we need to be cautious, just like we were in parables. Parables, yes, there are truths being taught, but maybe not giving us a precise, literal depiction of the afterlife. So there are important, vital truths being taught in Genesis. Uh, but because we are dealing with something that might be speaking against a, uh, a particular cultural view and it's adopting certain ways of telling stories, we may be wary of pushing the historical and scientific bits uh, farther than they are meant to be pushed. So God created, yes, but did he do it in a little seven days? That might be missing what's going on here. Is there an afterlife? Absolutely. But are we going to be seeing each other across the chasm? Probably not. Uh, and so uh, Genesis is teaching profound truths. I am not calling any of that into question. I'm simply saying that this genre is not setting us up uh, to tell us precise history or precise scientific account of creation. So there may very well, and I think many uh, evangelical Christian uh, readers think that there is some sort of uh, historical couple like Adam and Eve and maybe something like Eden and a historical <coughs> fall. But the exact nature of that is kind of mysterious due to the nature of the genre. Uh, and so hopefully as we're not threatened by parables teaching truths without giving us precise literal descriptions of things, so I would suggest that Genesis is teaching profound truths without giving us a specific, literal, scientific description of the timeline or the mechanics of creation. All right, where's, yes? The, there's an author who wanted to try to put some precise science with Genesis. There's a, a professor at Harvard who wrote a book, his name was Schrodinger, and I read his book, it was very interesting. And he used Einstein's theory of relativity to compare to the seven days like so, uh, modern science thinks the Earth was created 14 billion years ago. They think that mankind came on the scene, I'm gonna make up the number, like a million years ago. And he could line up those days and say, from God's perspective, with the warping of time that is created by the theory of relativity, you could line up using the natural log of blah, blah, blah. It didn't make, you know, I know what a natural log is, it doesn't, I don't comprehend yeah. what it is. But he lined it up and he, teach, he would teach us in his classes that you could take the literal days of the Bible and line them up with modern science's timeline. It was just very interesting yeah. and intriguing. Yeah, so my, my hesitancy with that is to say we need to still be wary of pushing it too far. Um, so you could say, you know, you might be able to even do something interesting and tease these, you know, how, how might these speak together, but, but to perfectly line it up is probably going to push the genre too far. Uh, but it might be something interesting to say, you know, there's actually, um, so for instance, uh, one of the ideas that is, is taught in Genesis is that God is creator. There was, seems to be nothing and then something. And the, the larger scientific consensus for a while was, was the material world was ever existent, was eternal. And the Christian view was, no, it's not eternal. There was a beginning point. And so the Big Bang, when, when that idea came along that something came from nothing, uh, was initially rejected by a lot of the scientific community because it was seen as though, oh, that's got to be an appeal to God, right? No, the, 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 um, the material world has, has been ever-existent. It's a steady state. 
Uh, and so it was kind of, I think Big Bang was almost a derogatory term. Um, and then, in fact, it ends up being the case that it does seem to be some sort of, of starting point. Um, so that doesn't prove Genesis. The guy who comes up with it, George, can you tell me his name, Lamatra, something like this? George Lamatra. Huh? Um, oh, oh, the Big Bang guy. Lamatra? Yeah, there's a Lamatra. George was the one who came up with Big Bang. Yeah, so, and uh, he kind of got dismissed at first until he was proved right. So, science can sometimes support some of these truths, but it can't necessarily support a highly literal reading. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. All right, where'd Matt go? There you are. Matt's going to clean up some of what I said before. Uh, or, or complicate it, one or the other. Remember that I'm I'm a English professor by day and they're theologians. But one of the things that we share as academics and as scholars is that is that both theologians and literary people understand that stories are hugely important. One way to define human beings, in contrast to Aristotle's um, the non-feathered bipedal, right? We walk on two legs like chickens, but we don't have feathers. That's what makes a human a human, according to Aristotle. A better way, I think, to define humans, which is also just as narrow, but also, I think, just as true, is that human beings are creatures who tell stories. Even before they know how to write or invent an alphabet, they tell stories. They tell stories even when they don't know for certain what the scientific or historical truths are. We tell stories. Because as human beings, that's how we tell the truth. And when we don't know the precise facts, we use stories to tell the truth anyway. And so stories are really important to human beings in all cultures, in all times, and in all places. And storytelling, it's really important, predates what we think of as the genres of science and the genre of, of history. When most of us think about history, we take for granted that, that everybody has always known the difference between history and fiction, or history and literature. But in fact, what, what we tend to think about as history, or history writing, is a very recent date. The first chair of history in the, wor in the world of the university was actually in, in 1850 at Oxford. What we think of as history is actually what, what historians call scientific history, or positivistic history which says you can't tell a story unless you can document the facts that the story tells. Unless you're working from something that has been written down or inscribed in stone, then you can't call it history. It's a lot like science. Modern science says if you can't measure it, weigh it, what are the other ones? Is that close enough? Quantify it in some way, <laughs> then we're not going to call it real because those are, that's going to be our standard. All of us are conditioned by thinking about science and history in those very <coughs> modern ways. But long before people had history or science, they, till, they still told stories anyway to express what they knew to be true, what they understood to be true, regardless of the fact that they couldn't exactly explain it any other way. And in fact, Stories are really important when there's, there's some things that are true and there's no other way to explain them except by telling a story. For example, if you take a, a happily married or an unhappily married couple, right? 
And if you ask, how do you know that so-and-so loves me? Or we'll, we'll, we'll go with moms. How do you know your mother loved you? Right? Nobody's going to give you a formula or a set of statistics or a data sheet. They're not going to give you a book, but they're going to tell you a story. And it's going to be true because they know they believe it's true. Does that make sense? And even though some of the stories we tell in our family, you know how family reunions are? Was that 1972 or was that after so-and-so graduated from college? Was it a red dress or was it a green dress? That doesn't change the truth of the story. Does that make sense? Even though historically or scientifically we're going to have a problem, we all understand that in those family stories, those don't matter because what's true exists at a level beyond those kinds of concerns. Does that make sense? That's my way of backing up what, what Josh has been saying about the importance of looking at genre and scripture. The different parts of the Bible were different, are, are, were written differently for different reasons. Parables, Psalms, Gospels. We got four, remember? Not one. Twenty-something letters to different people. Dream visions. Books of law. And in Genesis, a really interesting set of, of, of the oldest kinds of stories that cultures ever tell, which are their, their, their stories about how everything starts and what the truth behind everything is. So when, when we talk about Genesis as a story, we don't want you to hear us saying that they are fiction. That's not at all what we mean. They're stories that the ancient Hebrew people decided these are true. And what's true about them goes beyond what color the skirts were or how tall the trees were. It's truer than that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's excellent. All right. Uh, part of the reason what we, at least I, wanted to, to discuss this, um, one, I think it's important that we turn to Genesis and try to get at what it's getting at instead of trying to get from it what it's not meant to teach. Uh, and second, uh, one of the primary um, reasons uh, that are cited for young, younger people growing up and leaving the Christian faith is of a, a perceived conflict between science and the Christian faith. And so it's very important to me, as I'm teaching college students and as many of you are raising uh, kids, to help them see that, that we don't need to assume a conflict that may not be there. Um, that there might be ways of, of bringing these ideas together. So what, if we read this stuff closely, if we read Genesis 1 through 2 closely, maybe 1 through 3 closely, uh, what truths might it be teaching? Uh, I'm going to give you 10 briefly, and then I'm going to hand it over to Lauren to uh, unpack some of this more. But uh, first important truth I think it's teaching is that God is the sole creator. There is God who is self-existent and transcendent. There's not multiple gods uh, and what he creates is in some way distinct from him. So it's teaching an ancient world. It is not polytheism, multiple gods. There is one God. And uh, this becomes really important uh, in many ways. Um, but one of which that for me is it gives you an appeal to something like a basis for morality. There is one kind of fundamental reality, and that is God. It's also not pantheism, which is a way of saying God is in everything. 
God may have created all, but to the, the distinction between God and his creation helps us realize that when there is, there is horror in this world, when there are cancers, when there is, is just unfortunate circumstances and death, those aren't equal representations of the nature of God. Uh, that as creation is somehow distinct, there are, there are things in creation that don't represent the character of God. And you don't get that if God is wrapped up completely in creation. Second thing, uh, there is, if we read this closely, we see that creation is good. Seven times in that opening chapter, creation is good, it's good, it's good, it's good. I've lost count. Good, good, whatever it is. <laughs> creation is not evil. Uh, Christians um, expect, or Christians see that creation started out good, something went wrong, and then the vision at the end is God is restoring and renewing his good world. Um, so we don't look around us and think, we just care about the spiritual things. No, God cared about creation. He's going to redeem creation. He took on the flesh of his creation. Creation has a kind of sacredness to it. It's not, in the ancient world, a great primordial, primordial accident. It's not this kind of thing that's a result of violence among the gods. It's good. We see, third, God brings order to disorder. So I, noted, I, I referenced some of that poetry, that rhythm, um, and how God seems to be uh, calling things to work in a particular way. It's not just chaotic. Um, he brings the, the language for, um, in verse 2 of the, the disorder, something like tohu wabohu. Uh, it's kind of this fun, fun Hebrew language there. And he moves from chaos to a resting place for God when you get to that Sabbath rest on day 7. Fourth thing, the view of humans that Genesis 1 through 2 is teaching to its ancient world that as humans are both mortal and, and not immortal, but, but somehow spiritual, they are both dust, showing their mortality, their creatureliness, their material existence, but also they have the breath of God in them, which is something uh, that, that shows a kind of dignity and specialness about them. I think C.S. Lewis talks about humans are this kind of like amphibious creature, uh, both material and spirit. Uh, God calls humans uh, as those who are made in his image, which is not only about dignity, which it absolutely is, uh, but it's also about vocation. They are given what sounds like a priestly vocation. The language used for uh, the first humans is language later used for the priests in the book of Numbers, to care and tend for creation. It's a sacred task uh, to represent God in the way we care uh, for what he has made. Uh, um, humans, everything is called very good. Towards the end, humans are, are is good. Humans are very good. Ancient world, humans are made slaves to do the menial work uh, that the gods don't want to do. And the Genesis account, images of God given dignity and vocation. Um, if any human was the image of God in the uh, ancient world, it was typically only the king. There is one who might be able to represent God. And what does Genesis tell? No, that is not reserved for this hierarchical view. Everyone. It's a powerful statement, powerful kind of truth that we lose sight of if we're trying to make Genesis say something else. Fifth, God provides for humans. He takes care of them. He does not create humans to provide for him. God does not need us. That is so important, and it speaks so much against the ancient world uh, where there is this symbiotic relationship. God will do something for you, you do something for him. No, God doesn't need you. He has created you out of grace and love. 
There is work to be done. It's not static. It's good. It's not perfect or finished. So humans are made to be partners in bringing order uh, to the world. Seventh, male and female are both seen to be images of God. That's specified. He made them in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Uh, you have that scene of Adam not finding a suitable partner among the animals. I don't think this is talking about looking for a spouse. It's not like, have you checked out the foxes? You know, there's quite a vixen there, you know. <laughs> what about the cougars? You're a young guy. Um, no, it's, it's about seeing there's a suitable helper for him. Helper is not like the help, uh, the maid. Helper is a language used for God. You know that song we sing about Ebenezer, and you're like, what does Ebenezer have to do with any of this? Evan, stone, Ezer is helper. It's a reminder of God, the stone of remembrance. God is our helper. God is called helper, as Eve is called helper. So there's a partnership here. She's taken from his rib, which seems to be symbolic of she is beside him, not his head above him, not his feet below him, beside him. This is a powerful um, image that's speaking into, um, into, I think, a largely patriarchal culture that doesn't recognize uh, the, the inherent dignity and equality of females. The brokenness in the world is caused by sin. This is number eight. It's not intrinsic to creation. It's something different. Eden, number nine, is a place of harmony between God and humans. God is walking with humanity. They're not ashamed of their nakedness. Between humans and humans, as male is recognizing the glory and the goodness and the equal partnership, and even between humans and creation. If, if creation is seen like the temple of God where he comes to rest, Eden is almost like the holy of holies, this particularly sacred space. And lastly, when God comes to rest there, um, rest is not seen as disengagement and detachment. Rest is the same kind of language that's used for when the Israelites are supposed to enter the promised land and enter into rest. There is still work to be done. There are still fields to be tended, but it's going to be good. It's going to uh, work as it's supposed to. All right. Sorry, Lauren, I took up more time than I meant. No, that's... They did the heavy lifting today, so I'm okay with uh, having a little less time to get myself in trouble. Um, okay, so just to reiterate a couple of things that we've been touching on. When we say that creation is good but not perfect in the beginning, uh, before sin enters the picture, we're not saying that creation was made flawed. We're saying that it was made to develop. It was made for a dynamic emergence into a future that is better than what is good. It is made to become perfect. And humans have a vocation, which is a calling to cooperate with God, to partner with God in moving creation in that direction. So that's a really important piece of understanding what happens at the fall. So that's a really important thing to emphasize. We're not, when we say good but not perfect, we're not saying flawed, it was deliberately made this way, and when God said that it was good, he meant that it was good. Um, and like Josh said, I think it's a nice way to frame it. Uh, there, there is no brokenness in creation until sin enters the picture. Um, so what went wrong? Well, that's where we start looking at what's going on in Genesis 3. So I don't have time to read closely those verses, but I would encourage you to revisit them, particularly verses 1 through 7 and 14 through 19. Um, First of all, we have this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So thinking about this in the terms that Matt and Josh have really nicely set up for us, if we're not taking this just strictly literally, but also thinking about it theologically, what is being signaled by this? There's a lot of debate about what it means, and we're not going to solve it here. But one way of working it out 
um, is if you're reading the entire Hebrew Bible, you can look for other language at this sort of uh, the choice between good and evil. And you see this in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says children don't yet have a knowledge of good and evil. In 1 Kings 3, Solomon says something like this of himself. When he's a child, he doesn't understand good and evil yet. So there seems to be some sense in which um, Adam and Eve are being portrayed as childlike figures who are not yet equipped to make this kind of decision. Okay? Um, it's not that they have no moral decision-making capacity. They know what death is, so they have some sense of, of what they're kind of up against. They have responsibilities, but so do eight-year-olds, right? So uh, what we see is something like God creating them as a parent with children who need guidance. Um, they're not yet fully equipped to make kind of a decision about uh, their knowledge of good and evil. And by eating of the tree, they are deciding to become autonomous from God. They are saying, we don't need your guidance. We're going to take a different path than the one that you have laid out for us. So we can think of the story of tree, the tree of life as a wisdom story. In Proverbs 3, 16 through 18, the tree of life comes back up. It's associated with wisdom. Um, then again in Revelation 22, in the New Jerusalem, we see the tree of life is there. And if we're thinking about what is signaled by its place in Proverbs, in Proverbs we have Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly. Um, and if you remember what that means, Lady Wisdom is the guide to life. Dame Folly is the guide to self-destruction. So I think we can read uh, this choice that Adam and Eve have in the garden as uh, a choice between two paths, the path that leads to life, the path that leads to dis destruction. God has given us an inherent identity as images who are to be imagers. We are to spread throughout the earth images of Eden. And uh, when we live out of that identity, we flourish, growing into God's likeness. When we do not live out of it, we break. And this is what happens in the fall narrative. Sin is what happens when humanity says, to God, I don't like being in your image. I want to be or have or construct my own image. I want to be my own God, right? That's what sin is. That's the heart of it. That's what we're getting here. So in Genesis uh, 3, 14 through 19, God speaks to the consequences of what they've done. Uh, essentially, we could frame that as the disruption of shalom, the disruption of the, the harmony that they have in Eden. Um, the very people who were supposed to partner with God in subduing the chaos in creation have now invited it in, have exacerbated it, have subjected the creation to futility. That's the image that comes up in Ecclesiastes, in Romans. The creation is undergoing futility or vanity. So what we have here, uh, first of all, is, uh, and there's this question about what was the place of death. So if Eve knew what that meant, um, we're not sure that it seems like there was some sort of death beforehand, right? But what we see here is now death is inevitable. Uh, perhaps we were called to the possibility of eternal life, and when we decided to sin, we rejected that possibility. Um, so now we certainly will return to dust. Death is certain. Uh, now the creation will fight back with thorns. Uh, the serpent set will be bruising the heel of the human, so there's enmity between animals and humans. And uh, this also resu results in toil. The word toil is a really important one. Uh, we should not confuse that with work. Remember, there's already work in Eden before the fall. This word signals something like anxiety, despair, um, inner turmoil, dread. Now, 
our life's work is subjected to this kind of anxiety. Um, Interestingly also in verse 16, the pain in childbearing, that word for pain is the same one used for toil. Uh, And and then the word translated childbearing is actually quite literally conception. So there's this sort of anxiety involved in bringing children into the world. When you bring your children into this kind of world, you don't know if they'll live or die. You don't know what kind of person they'll turn out to be, right? Um, So there's this anxiety, this pain. There's also the woman's desire for her husband and he will rule over her. There are three main schools of thought on this. One is the desire for the husband needed for childbearing. Two is this might simply mean sexual desire since this word is used later in Song of Solomon in a positive way. And third, it might mean a desire for control. Um, There's a parallel there in Genesis 4-7. Whatever it is, man will dominate woman. The desires are inordinate. The relationships are inordinate. The whole situation is not what God wants. It's a result of the fall. They were previously equal partners. Now there's this war between the sexes. Okay? Um, This is the consequences. This is what comes of losing the peace of Eden. So on your sheet there, I've listed the four... Uh, consequences of the disruption of shalom. Disrupted relationship with God, number one. Number two, disruption within the self. Now we have anxiety, self-loathing. Number three, disruption of human community. These disordered desires and relations, especially punctuated here between man and woman. And four, we have the disruption within the creation or cosmos itself. And so now we're in the situation of living in a body that is subject to sin and death. And we are cast out of the garden. But are we without hope? That's where we look to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, The resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Praise God for that. Um, It's time to wind up, but there is a a quote on the back above that beautiful poem by Chris. Uh, This is less poetic. It's by Augustine of Hippo. Uh, who lived in the fourth, well, he was born in the fourth century AD. I think this is a helpful way to wrestle with this when we think about how we were made and how we will be remade when we are brought into perfection. So will the question he was wrestling with here was the question of freedom. And he says, the first free will which was given to us when we were created, good but not yet to our perfection, right? The first free will gave us the ability not to sin, but also the ability to sin. Our new freedom will be that sin will no longer have attraction for us. That's kind of what he's saying there. And then the part I put in bold a little further down, the first freedom of choice conferred the ability not to sin. The new freedom will confer the inability to sin. It surely cannot be said that God does not have any freedom of choice just because God is unable to sin. So we'll be made in the likeness of God. So that will be our new freedom. That's what we were meant to move into from the beginning. But we took this detour, and God has taken it with us. God has met us there, and God has saved us. So we'll talk more about the consequences of the fall next week. Thank you.